If I haven't met you before, my name's James, and it's brilliant to be with you. It's great to have you back after the summer, so many of you. I am continuing our series in the Creed this evening. Some of you will not know what the Creed is, and that is absolutely fine, but we did actually sing it earlier. Not quite, but not far off. The Hillsong song, Hillsong song. I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And it goes on. But I've entitled this series, We Believe, rather than, I could have called it, I Believe, which would be very much like our culture. Well, I believe this. But I think what we're saying is, we're saying, we believe. This is, as, as Christians, as Orthodox Christians, this is what we believe. We believe in the Apostles' Creed. And so for those of you who don't know what that is, the Apostles' Creed was written in the 300s. So quite a long time ago now. And there were a number of reasons why the early church wrote this. It wasn't actually the apostles themselves, but it was people who gathered together the teachings of the apostles. And what they were trying to do is that they were trying to, in a very short summary, say, what is it that people believe? What is it that Christians believe? And so I talked a couple of weeks ago, and I talked in the vineyard about how we like to talk about the main and the plain. It's really, really easy to get sidetracked in conversations and end up talking about things that are really not that important. But what we're saying when we're looking at the creed is we're saying that these things are of utmost importance. This is the basis upon which our, uh, our faith is based. And so that's what we're looking at. So I'm going to read it. It should just come up on the screen behind me. And it says this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Now, today is going to be pretty full on. It comes with a little bit of a health warning, if I'm honest. When I was preparing the series, I prepared it into six talks, and we kind of broke it down. I've realized that I'm taking on some pretty meaty topics tonight. And you'll realize I'm only doing four lines, but each one of them could be a 17-part series is what I've realized. So it's coming in in about three hours and 17 minutes at the moment. So genuinely hope you're happy with that. Don't see that as being a problem. You came here to hear the word, yes? Um, you're like, I'm out. I'm out of this church. No way. I want it in 25 minutes, and I want it to be really succinct. So, the four things that I'm taking on are this. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So, that's not going to take more than 25 minutes, is it? So, let's jump in. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's really, really interesting, the language here, that Jesus is suffering is important. If you think when they kind of summarized the creed and they brought it down to the things that they were like, this is of utmost importance. 
that this is what they put in. Suffered under, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why is this in here? What has Jesus' suffering got to do with the kind of the core of our faith? In other words, could we, could we have just missed this bit out? So we need to look at why did Jesus suffer? Why is suffering important? Why is Jesus' suffering important? Now, we live in a world that is suffering and messed up. I don't think that's in any way controversial. I think you could go out on the street, I could talk to pretty much anybody, and they would go, yeah, do you know what? There is a lot of suffering in the world, and our world is pretty messed up right now. People don't disagree with that. And the fact is that all of us will suffer at some point. Uh, it's impossible to watch or, or read the news without realizing that suffering is a part of human experience. We just see it in our everyday lives. We see people going through loss. We th see people going through tragedy. We will suffer the loss of loved ones. That is devastating, isn't it? When somebody that we love dies, hugely, hugely difficult. Perhaps you've suffered from injustice or pain from an accident or an illness. Some of you here will have an illness that you're carrying right now. That is really, really tough. Maybe it's that you've suffered a broken heart from divorce or a relational breakup. Again, these are big things that we're talking about. We will all experience the brokenness of our world and each other. So it's not just that our world's broken. It's not just that the environment and things like that out there are going on. The truth is, many of us are broken as well. Much of the many of the people in our world are broken. So suffering is one of the great mysteries that causes Christians and non-Christians alike to call the love of God into question. So if you've been around for any time, you know, talking about your faith, this question will come up. It just will. You will be in a conversation with somebody. How could God be a loving God and still allow this to happen to me? This is what I'm going through right now. How can this happen? Or how could this happen to somebody that I love? It's not necessarily just about us. It can be about loved ones as well. Perhaps the greatest objection to faith in the 21st century is the enormity of suffering that we see in this world and that we experience. The, the creed says of Jesus Christ, he suffered. Now, the suffering of Jesus does not explain our suffering, but it does reveal to us a God who is willing to allow himself to be subjected to and experience all of the pain and suffering that we, that we have in this broken world. So Jesus experiences. As Christians, we do not worship a God who stands far off. We have a saviour who knows and understands pain. He's experienced it. And if you just think back to the, the gospel accounts, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and these accounts of Jesus, we see Jesus experience the depths of emotion. We see him experience betrayal by everybody that he loves. Literally everybody that he loves, all of his friends, they desert him. In his moment when he most needed them, they desert him. We see him experience the most brutal death on the cross. He experienced physical pain. We see him experience disconnection from the Father, relational pain. So on every level, when you look at the person of Jesus, you see him experiencing every kind of pain that we can imagine. I don't think the Christians need to, never need to be ashamed of our faith in light of the world's suffering. We worship a God 
who in his love chose to experience firsthand what it is to live as a human in a world that's been horribly marred by sin. Sometimes when I'm just thinking about the incarnation, and what I mean by that is when Jesus came down from heaven and he came to this earth to live as a human being, that he gave away, not get, put aside his divinity, sorry, in order to come to the earth, it's still the most remarkable thing, isn't it, that God would act like that. That's what, we, that's what we see. And I would say that personally, for me, this has been an absolutely massive deal to my faith. When I look at the person of Jesus and the suffering that he experiences. As I said, many of us will experience suffering. Some of you right now are, are in the midst of just a really rubbish time. You know, life just feels really tough now. I have also been through those moments. And what it is, the thing that I absolutely, that just... I, I marvel at is this moment where I can look into Jesus's eyes and go, you know exactly what I'm going through. You know, you understand that there's compassion in his eyes. It's not kind of this looking, oh, just get, just get on with it, suck it up, get over it. It's this moment where Jesus looks at you and he's like, I understand. I know what it is to experience pain. The image of Jesus taking the sin of the world on his shoulders on the cross. If you think about Jesus' arms, they were, the nails were put into his hands and both arms were out. And we see him taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. What that's saying is Jesus was perfect. He was spotless. He'd never done anything wrong. And yet in this moment, he takes the mess, he takes the brokenness of this world and he puts it on his shoulders and there on the cross, he dies for us. It goes on to say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. So not only that he suffered, but under Pontius Pilate. Why is that important? Well, the single uncontested fact about Jesus that was that he was crucified in Jerusalem sometime in AD 30. And he was executed at the word of the Jerusalem high priest and on the order of Pontius Pilate. So it was Pontius Pilate that sent him to his death. That Jesus was crucified, dead, and was buried is probably the only line of the Apostles' Creed that even atheists could confess with a clear conscience. The rest of it, they're like, I believe in God the Father. They're like, no. I believe in Christ the Son. No. But this, that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, I think they'd look and they'd be like, yes, I can agree with that. The problem is that we can all too easily mouth the words, was crucified. We can almost just go straight over this line, can't we? Was crucified, dead and buried? Yes, I know that. And if you've been a Christian for a while, yes, I know. And we can forget what these words really mean. We can forget the horror that these words would have held for the people of the time, for the people who'd actually seen a crucifixion how traumatic that would be. So we can become quite accustomed to the language of the cross without realising its power, without realising what's going on. And as a society, it's become quite commonplace. It's just become an everyday part of life. I've seen it in fashion and jewellery and art and religious symbols and all of these things. But it's not like the iconic M for McDonald's or the Apple logo. It's the symbol of crucifixion. It's not the same. It's not just religious branding. 
we're talking about the most horrendous form of torture we can imagine. A distinctive symbol that tells us what God is like. That there is no length that he won't go to to have relationship with us. That's what the cross shows us. How much he loves us. As I was preparing this week, I was reminded of a kid's book that I used to read. And I've been reading it with my children. And so I dug through the bookshelf to see whether I'd still got it. And it's a little pop-up book. And some of you will be like, never heard of it. And it's, guess how much I love you. The morning service were much more au fait with it. They were like, James, we know what you're talking about. Instead, you've brought a kid's book to your talk. I'm regretting it right now. But it's really the story of little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. And these two little bunny rabbits. And it it starts like this. Little nut brown hair who was going to bed held on tight to big nut brown hair's very long ears. And he wanted to be sure that big nut brown hair was listening. Guess how much I love you, he said. Oh, I don't think I could guess, said that, said big nut brown hair. This much, said little nut brown hair stretching out his arms as wide as they could go. And big nut brown hair had even longer arms. And so he stretched them out all the way and he said, I love you this much. Little nut brown hair says, I love you as high as I can reach. And the story goes on and on. And what happens in this moment is however, oh, that was an amazing catch. (laughs) Did you see that? Can we just see that in slow motion? (sighs) Awesome. I was telling a really profound story that I can't remember. Something about little nut brown hair. Guess how much I love you. And however much little nut brown hair was trying to say, this is how much I love you, big nut brown hair would be like, well, I love you even more. And so it finishes, little nut brown hair says, I love you all the way to the moon. And just as they're going to sleep, big nut brown hair lies down and he says, I love you all the way to the moon and back. And there's this picture for me, and what it reminded me of is what's happening on the cross. Is on the cross, Jesus is saying, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. And as his arms are outstretched, he's saying, this is how far I would go for you. This is the depths of my love. Because so often we talk about love, don't we? And, you know, we could tell somebody that we love them. We can tell them how amazing they are. But it is different when somebody acts sacrificially. When they say, do you know what? I'm now going to show you how much I love you. And so that's what we say when we're talking about the cross. We are seeing the extent of God's love for us. And he say, I would go this far for you. I would go to the cross for you. So it's a picture of divine love. Sacrificial love. Now, crucifixion meant humiliation, death, shame, and cruelty. Crucifixion was the Roman way of saying, if you dare to mess with us, there is no limit and no restraint on the violence that we will do to you. It came to a point where even the Romans considered it so barbaric and inhumane that they stopped doing it. They were like, even we think that this is wrong. So moving on, Paul says the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Many before us and many after us have and will struggle to come to terms with the cross as a sacrifice for humanity's sins and the ordained means by which divine anger is settled. Many people struggle with that. What's going on at the cross? I've had countless discussions with people, as many of you will. But for many, the story of the cross is shameful and it offends them and they think it's absurd. Some even think it's ridiculous. It's like, why would God do this? And yet none of the sneers and taunts can change the fact that the cross is a beacon of light in our world. The cross is hope. The cross is joy. The cross is peace. And the cross is love. All of those things. It's the ultimate act of love. When you read Luke's gospel, the cross isn't the end result of a series of unfortunate events. So it's not this moment where Jesus kind of bangs from thing to thing to thing and then ends up in this horrendous situation where he's being crucified, but it's part of the divine plan. It's so much bigger than that. If you read the book of John, Jesus' death is a revelation of divine glory and motivated by divine love. In Corinthians, Paul said the message of Christ crucified is the very power of God. Paul goes on to say in Galatians that even his own identity was somewhat mysteriously connected to the death of Jesus to the point that he could say, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. These are just the most astonishing words. Paul is saying, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the picture of what's going on in baptism. That's what's happening when we're being baptized is that we're going under the water crucified with him and raised again to new life. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's been this divine exchange that occurs. It's no longer I that live, but it's God that lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy set before him enjoyed the cross, scorning its shame. Again, the most remarkable words, for the joy set before him endured the cross. That word joy is hard to miss, and it would have struck Romans and Greeks and Jews as unbelievable to associate the crucifixion with any kind of joy. Just want to, for a moment, read The story of Jesus in Gethsemane. This is the moment where he's in the garden before he goes to the cross. And what I'd love you to notice is the humanity that we see of Jesus in this moment. The wrestle that he's going through. It says this, verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch over me. My soul is sorrow. This is Jesus speaking. My soul is sorrowful. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you. He's coming before the father and he's saying, there is nothing, nothing in me that wants to do this. Is there any way out of this situation? God, there has to be. Surely there's another way. Yet 
Not my will be done, but yours. Then he returned to his disciples, verse 40, and found them sleeping. Can you see why he's annoyed in this moment? It's like, I'm going through this, and you're flipping sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time. So this is the wrestle. It's not just once. He comes back again. And he says, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. There's almost a submission of Jesus going on in this moment, isn't there? There's a surrender. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Must have run out of patience at this point. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. This wrestle, in this wrestle, we see the humanity of Jesus. We see what it cost. It wasn't just this moment that he stood on the cross, you know, that, sorry, that he died on the cross and it didn't cost him anything. It cost him everything. Cost him everything. And seeing the depth of this moment, do you know what it leads me to? It leads me to this one response. It leads me to gratitude. It leads me to say, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you reign over us and that you're alive and well. So just moving forward, it's not getting any lighter. He descended into hell. You're like, Shabba. So am I. That is... One of these moments where you're like, oh, can I preach on something else? What does it mean he descended to hell? You're all sitting there going, I thought you were going to tell me. Well, I'm going to tell you. You know, there are objections thrown in the face of any Christian who wants to engage with others about their Christian faith. If you want to talk about your Christian faith in the workplace with a colleague, with a neighbor, with your family, there are objections raised. I've already mentioned some of them. How can God be loving if I'm suffering? One of the biggest objections to faith. A second one would be when we come and, for instance, I'm saying, we believe this. And they'd be like, there's no such thing as truth. That would be another objection. How can you say that? How can you say that there's truth in the world in which we live? Well, a third objection the statement he descended into hell deals squarely with the third great objection to our faith the experience of the absence of God. This is probably the most controversial and confusing line in the creed. It dates back to the fourth century. But this idea of Jesus descending into hell goes back earlier still to the early church. It was affirmed by virtually all of the second and third century church fathers. These were some of the big dogs around at that time. So you've got Irenaeus, you've got Tertullian, you've got Clement of Alexandria. The belief that Jesus descended into hell was affirmed by the great Saint Athanasius in the fourth century and probably the greatest of the church fathers, Saint Augustine, I can't say his name, in the fifth century. Martin Luther, who was the father of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, taught it, and so did John Calvin. What does it mean? Well, some people say that when it says he descended into hell, it's really mistranslated. I don't know that any, any of you noticed, but last week, Paul actually used a different translation. No, none of you noticed. It's good. I'm glad you didn't notice. 
But they suggest that it really means he descended into the grave. He descended into what the Old Testament called Sheol. And it simply means that Jesus died. That's what some people would say. But that would be, as John Calvin said, a useless repetition. The creed uses an economy of words. There aren't that many words in it. It doesn't say the same thing twice. And it is already said, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. To say it again, that he went to the grave, would just be the same thing the creed has already said. Some people say that Jesus descended to Sheol to preach to the dead, or that he literally went to hell to proclaim his victory over Satan, or to give those in hell a second chance. There's a number of different ways of looking at them. And there's a number of scriptures that are slightly ambiguous about these directions. The view that I, that I would sit with, along with a guy called Rich Nathan, who leads the largest vineyard church in Columbus in the States, that I find the most convincing is the view of John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer. Calvin said that this part of the creed constituted the last phase of Christ's humiliation, the humbling of God in suffering. So what it's saying is that there is no depth of human suffering of which our Lord was not acquainted. He, so when I said earlier, and I talked about this idea that Jesus suffered, that he understands every part of our suffering. There was no part of suffering that he didn't know about. To say that he descended into hell means that Jesus identified with everything that we go through, including experiencing the loss of God, the utter absence of God. So Jesus experienced what many of us experience, seasons of life where God seems utterly absent. Holy Saturday is the day when we consider the meaning of the absence of God. If you think about it, you have Friday. On Friday, Jesus died. On Sunday, Jesus rose again. So the question that's really going on is, what happened between the point when Jesus died on Friday and the point where he rose again on Sunday? Where was Jesus? That's really the question. And this is what's known in the church calendar as Holy Saturday. Where is God? He's dead. He's buried. He's absent. Now, have you ever had this experience where it seemed like God was just absent from your life and from your world and silent in the face of your prayers? That's what the absence of God feels like. It's like, God, where are you? I just feel like you're absent. We sometimes feel in these moments like maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe he doesn't answer prayer. Maybe he doesn't love us. That's what the absence of God feels like. Good Friday and Holy Saturday bring home to us how unreliable our experience and our feelings are as a guide to the presence of God. If you were standing near the cross on Good Friday and you saw Jesus hanging on the cross, bloody and dying, and you heard the jeers of the crowd, you might have thought, surely, if there is a place on earth where God is not working, it is right here at the cross. Can you see how you'd think that? Surely God couldn't be here at the cross. If you were there on Holy Saturday, you would say, surely God is doing nothing here. He's absent. What you wouldn't know, but which history would later reveal, is that after Friday, and after Saturday comes Sunday. But you would have looked at it in that moment and be like, God is utterly absent. 
And we might be tempted to say the same thing. God couldn't be in all of this mess, in all of this horror. He must be absent from this scene. On Holy Saturday, it's totally silent. God couldn't be working here. Everything is lost. There can't be anything happening that would resolve this problem. Have you ever experienced a Holy Saturday in your life? Maybe that's where you are today. You're in that place. You're in a situation where you're like, where could God possibly be in this situation? It may be at the time when you think God is doing the least. He's actually doing the most because Sunday is coming. But God is not absent from your life, even though it sometimes feels that way. God is not silent, even though sometimes you can't hear his voice. He's at work in your life and the world, just as he was at the cross on Holy Saturday. God knew where all of this was heading. And so we come to the final phrase, sentence. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. If I'm really honest, I find that they've written this in a slightly underwhelming way. I don't know about you, and I don't think that this is bad or irreverent to say this. Please, Lord. But they've, they've really not gone for a lot of adjectives in here, have they? It's a bit like, bang, 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 and then he descended. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. On the third day... Jesus rose victorious from the grave. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I just think they could have gone a bit bigger. Sorry, that's just my current feeling. If we were to add an addendum, but um, we're not going to. But what we see here in this final moment is the ultimate picture of victory. When I think about the resurrection, I think about this word victory. What's happened? Two major things. The first is this, Satan has been defeated. Satan has been defeated on the one hand. On the other side, death has been defeated. There's these two things going on. He defeated death. He rose victorious. He showed that the grave could not hold him. And I've had this song circling in my mind for the last couple of days. And this is an old school song. And most of you might never have heard of this. But it kind of, it just sums up what I think is going on in these four things that I've talked about. It says this, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. That basically just talks about what we've been talking about. It even goes on to the next bit that Jesus ascended to heaven. And when we're talking about Jesus and when we're looking at the resurrection and what it achieved, I was just blown away by looking at the names of Jesus. Because I think sometimes we try and summarize the cross very simply. And do you know what? I think that's really important. What happened, what happened on the cross? Sin was defeated, that Jesus took our sin on his shoulders. We are forgiven, you know, at a very simple level. But on a macro level, there's so much more 
going on than that. And I think sometimes the titles of Jesus help us to see the breadth of what's going on. It says this, and I'm just going to run through these. And I want you to marvel at the person of Jesus in this moment. It says, Almighty One, Alpha and Omega, Advocate, Author and Perfecter of our faith. These are the things that Jesus is. Authority, the bread of life, beloved Son of God, Bridegroom, Chief cornerstone, deliverer, faithful and true, good shepherd, great high priest, head of the church, holy servant, I am, Emmanuel, indescribable gift, judge, king of kings, lamb of God, light of the world, lion of the tribe of Judah. What a beautiful image. Lord of all, mediator, Messiah, mighty one, one who sets free our hope, peace, prophet, redeemer, risen, rock, sacrifice for us, saviour, son of man, son of the most high, supreme creator overall, resurrection and the life, the door, the way, the word, true vine, truth, victorious, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. They're awesome, aren't they? These are the titles of Jesus. This, this is what he won. This is what his resurrection is about. These things. Mighty God, wonderful counsel, mighty God, everlasting Father. That's just 50 names of Jesus to get us started. That's how awesome he is. The resurrection is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone. The resurrection is for absolutely everyone. It is for this room, and that's amazing, but it's not just for this room. The resurrection is for all people. I want to come in to finish with this. How many of you have seen the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe film? Yes. I watched a clip of it this morning, actually. And there's a bit near the end, and it's called The Resurrection of Aslan. After his cruel execution by the wicked white witch, the two girls later hear a large cracking noise. And they turn and see that the stone table is broken in two and the body of Aslan is gone. And it's then that they see the resurrected Aslan emerge. And this is a powerful part of the film. And the girls are excited but naturally confused. So Aslan explains and he says this, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would know that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. I want to leave you today with an image. When I spoke a couple of weeks ago, I left you with the image of the father. I talked about the father and the prodigal son. And I, and I, I left you with the image of being embraced by the father. That was the picture. The son running towards the father and the father embracing the son and kissing and pouring out his love upon the son. This evening, I want to leave you with a different image. And I want to leave you with the image of Jesus with his arms outstretched. And with his arms outstretched, he says, this is how much I love you.
this is how much I love you. This is how far I would go for you. This is the length that I would go to for you. So why don't we stand?